I was riding a train to Germany and I was really, really tired. And so I sat down next to this guy and promptly fell asleep. And when I woke up, I had fallen asleep on him and drooled all down the side of his jacket. He was sleeping too. And then when he woke up, he kind of looked at his jacket and was very confused why it was all wet. There was one time when I was a waiter during college. It was Valentine's Day, and I saw the, these two uh, older gentlemen sitting together. So I went to take their order, and I swung around and said, and what will you two gentlemen be drinking today? To which the woman stared at me and said, I'm a woman. Then I said, I'm sorry, from behind your hair is short. To which she said, I know, it's been a hard day. They took way too many inches off but thanks for reminding me of it. I really love cats, and a couple years ago, my husband and I were ready to leave for a Disneyland trip, and I wanted to say goodbye to my cat, but she unfortunately did not want to say goodbye to me. Now I show them the video. Cats are evil. <laughs> uh, this is basic moral truth for you all to know. Uh, I want to say hi to everybody, folks joining us online, all of our campuses. Say a word about uh, children. If you missed last week, we invited everybody who wanted to to change the life of a vulnerable child by sponsoring one child or, or as many as you'd like to through Compassion International. Uh, we had amazing stories, teenagers, uh, young teenagers who said, I want to sponsor a child out of my babysitting money. Um, I, uh, one quite elderly person was looking real carefully through the profiles and said, I want to find an older child because I don't know how many years I have to live and I want to sponsor my child all the way through. And all together, actually, I just got the latest update from Benny. Uh, we are now over 1,100 children that you all have sponsored. And so, um, Yay, God. Yay, you. If you haven't done that yet, you can head over to Connection Center or go online after the service and um, sponsor a child, and you will not regret it. There's a song we used to sing when I was growing up in church as a kid. None of you will be old enough to remember it, but it started, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Now, I've been thinking about that song as our nation has been very concerned about and often divided over images of little children being separated from their families at the borders of our country. And our elders want our congregation and beyond to know it is our job as a church, our job as followers of Jesus to declare Jesus loves the little children and to share the broken heart of God when we see children suffering. It is our job to be good neighbors to anybody that God brings across our path. We have a call to action to exercise compassion to children and the vulnerable over here, as well as those who are over there, and to heal families, and to pray for wisdom for our leaders. And that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we're talking in this series about how God's strength is made perfect in weakness. We're looking today at a story about this from the book of Judges. It's a book in the Old Testament of the Bible. And I want to say a word about how to read the Bible and how to read the book of Judges in particular, because it's kind of a weird book for us. Often in our day, people think that the Bible is kind of a dull book, mostly about moralism. It would not have been read that way at all by its original audience. Uh, the book of Judges was, to that audience, a lot more like 
what an action movie would be like in our day. So this is how you want to get ready for this story. Particularly from the Marvel superhero universe, if you know that at all. And for this story, you want to think about two characters in particular. Iron Man, who has an impenetrable suit made of? Iron. Iron. Uh, And then Thor, the great Scandinavian superhero. All the greatest heroes, of course, in literature are Scandinavian. And his super weapon, anybody remember it? It's a great hammer. So keep that in mind also. Iron Man and Thor with a hammer. Now, in Judges, a lot like in an action movie, the heroes are basically fighting for the good side, but they're very flawed. And they're often prone to anger and, and sometimes to ego. And the action is often dark and morally complex and ambiguous. And people sometimes don't understand that the biblical writers are very capable of giving clear moral instruction when it's time to do that. And they do that. But then in narrative, they often make the reader work through what's good, what's bad, what's mixed, because human life is very, very mixed. In the book of Judges, the bad guys are really bad. There is a moral arc to the universe, but it often looks very precarious. And the darkness of human actions is showed very clearly, partly to show what is at stake in God's world. The book of Judges would have been read with the same kind of excitement and delight by ancient audiences that we'd get in a great movie about Thor, Iron Man, or whoever, but with the knowledge that behind the scenes, God is at work in actual human history. These are not comic book characters. To ever so slowly teach Israel and eventually humanity that there is a moral and spiritual reality underneath this world. And that finding it and conforming to it is the ultimate battle for you and me and our world. So that's the book of Judges, kind of like an action movie, but with real deep stuff going on underneath. Here's the situation for our story. Uh, God has delivered Israel from slavery, from Pharaoh in Egypt. They went through the wilderness for 40 years. They've now been brought into the promised land. They don't have any kings yet, but they have a problem. This is Judges 4. Uh, Israel did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, there's a recurring cycle in the book of Judges. Um, Israel is brought into the promised land, but it gets idolatrous and corrupt. God gives them over to their enemies. They suffer. And so in their suffering, they cry out, God, help us. And God will send a deliverer called a judge in this book. And Israel gets liberated, and they experience peace, and then prosperity, and then they get self-sufficient, they forget about God, they get idolatrous, and that cycle just keeps going over and over. That's the point of the whole book of Judges, and it gets darker and darker. So we're looking at what happens in one particular cycle. They're idolatrous, they forget about God, they're corrupt. So verse 2, God sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, Canaan, the Canaanites are bad guys in this story. Uh, in a good story, there's often an image that recurs that you want to watch, and that's the case here. They're, they're sold, given over into the hand. And hand is a theme, an image that you're going to watch for in this story. King Jabin had a general named Sisera. Sisera is the arch villain in this piece. So think Hitler, uh, bin Laden, uh, Stalin, somebody like that. Because Sisera had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. So 
The bad guys have Iron Aid technology. Uh, this, is, this is relevant because Israel does not at this point in its history. Iron chariots are the problem. Uh, if, if you don't have iron, iron is the enemy that you cannot defeat. You face iron chariots, and you always face iron chariots. If you do it on your own, you're going to lose every time. So General Sisera, kind of like Iron Man, only he's a bad guy. Sisera was cruel and depressive and vile in ways that we will not fully understand until we get to the end of this passage. Israel is in trouble. Israel needs a hero. Israel needs someone of tremendous strength and indomitable courage and unconquerable faith. Israel needs somebody who would rather die than grovel. And in the hill country of Israel, there is such a hero. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak. Now, this is very interesting. Israel is being led in this crisis by a woman. Sometimes people think that according to the Bible, women are not supposed to lead men. But here she is. Sometimes people think it's okay for women to lead in certain limited areas, but at home, they have to be led by their husband. Here, the text tells us quite deliberately that Deborah was the wife of Lapidoth. So a little syllogism here for those of you who are into logic. A, Deborah was leading Israel. B, Lapidoth, her husband, was part of Israel. C, therefore Deborah was leading Lapidoth, her husband. And that was God's choosing. Now, I wonder how she responded when God called her. I wonder if, she, if any part of her thought, no, God, I can't do that. That job is for boys. God said, I know what I'm doing. I, I made women just like I made men. And I'm not calling your husband to do this. I'm not calling Gideon to do this. I'm not calling Joshua. I'm not calling Samson. Not now, not here. I'm calling you, Deborah. You're the one I want. Do you know God is calling you right now, male or female, doesn't matter. God has a great battle for you to engage in. It may or may not look dramatic to anybody else, but it is there. I wonder what you're saying to your call from God to that battle. Well, God calls Deborah to be a warrior. In the book of Judges, that's what they are. They're primarily warriors. But it's very interesting. In this text, we're told that she's also a prophet, that was not normally the case. So she's a great warrior leader. She's also a great prophet. Not only that, she's the only judge in this book who actually settles disputes. We think of judge, normally we'll think of a, you know, a courtroom figure in a robe. That wasn't so much the case in this book, but it was for Deborah. She's the only one who hearkens back to Moses where the people would bring their disputes, and now Deborah settles them. So she is a warrior, and she is a prophet. We'll see how that plays out later on. And she's deciding their cases. She is a multitasker. My wife and I will sometimes talk about multitasking. It is multitasking a good thing or not a good thing. And I don't like, I like single tasking. And my wife will say partly that's because as a man, you often just have the luxury of not having to multitask. <laughs> so uh, according to the Bible, dear, you may be right. Um, don't let it go to your head. Anyway, uh, we're told that 
Deborah sends for Barak. Now, Barak's the general in Israel. And in the book of Judges, as was often the case in ancient literature, still in our day, to send for someone is the act of a person who is assuming authority, who is in power. Being a woman, you might expect Deborah to go to Barak and tactfully offer a suggestion, make him think it was his idea. You know how men are. But she does not do this. She is leaning in. She is a formidable character. She tells Barak to take 10,000 soldiers to the Kishon River as an old dried-up wadi. She says, General Sisera will be their evil iron man with his 900 evil iron chariots. But don't worry, General Barak, because God has told her that God will deliver Sisera into Barak's hands. There's that word hands again. And the audience would be kind of loving this. And the audience would expect, of course, Barak, Israel's general, is going to be the hero. This is going to be the moment when Thor picks up his hammer and says, game on, goes after it. But Barak does not say, game on. Says something nobody would be expecting at this point. Barak said to her, Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Really? A girl. Girls can't fight. There are whole books by Christian authors in our day that say boys are made by God to be warriors and girls are made by God to be beauties that boys fight to rescue. It just turns out the Bible is not one of those books. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That word, hands again. Now, in any great action story, you all know about this, the final showdown has to be between the hero and the villain. Good guy and the bad guy. Batman versus Joker, David, Goliath. Superman's got to be the one to get rid of Lex Luthor. Not Lois Lane, for crying out loud. Lois Lane is going to be the rescuee, not the rescuer. But here, in this odd story, it's in the Bible, Barak is not going to be the hero at all. In fact, the hero is going to be a woman. And the, the listeners, the audience, would expect at this point, well, I guess then the hero must be Deborah. So just watch. Barak calls the troops. Deborah goes up with him as he asks. The armies are in place. The battle is about to begin. Everybody's waiting for this moment. It's like when we're watching a movie and it's the big climactic battle and everybody is just, you know, paused with bated breath here because this is going to be good. Huge battle. Bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. Blood, gore, swords, spears, horses, maiming, gouging, beheaded, death. Except it's not. That's not what happens. They all know that's common, but it doesn't. Here's the next line in the story. Now Heber the Kenite pitched his tent by a great tree. And the audience is saying, who in the world cares about whoever Heber the Kenite is and why he's pitching his tent someplace? And the story gets even stranger. There is a battle. Israel wins the battle against General Sisera. But the battle doesn't hardly get described here at all. In fact, it's not till the next chapter, until what's called the Song of Deborah, that we find out that God sent a rainstorm, and that wadi, the Kishon River, gets flooded, and the iron chariot that General Sisera is so proud of, they become a liability instead of an asset with the floods, and, and, and the bad guys lose, the good guys win. That's what happens, but it hardly gets described here. 
And to make matters worse, General Sisera, the arch villain of the piece, the bad guy, gets away on foot. And he comes to a tent, the tent of Jael, who is the wife of Heber the Kenite, another woman in this story of great battles. Now, the Kenites were not part of Israel. They were not good guys. They were, they were tent dwellers. They were considered nomads. The word would be, in our culture, something like hillbillies or gypsies, a pejorative term. Polite people wouldn't use it. Uh, they were blacksmiths, which means they would be the ones who made the iron chariots that were being used by General Sisera and the bad guys. This tribe had an alliance with the bad guys. Jael says to General Sisera, come, my lord, come right on in. Do not be afraid. And he expects he's entitled to her generosity, so he says, I'm thirsty. Give me water. She actually gives him a skin of milk, an act of generosity. And then he goes in and lays down to go to sleep, and she covers him with a blanket. Now, if you ever watch movies, you know anytime somebody goes to sleep and another person covers them with a blanket, that's always kind of a tender moment. That's always done to demonstrate the compassion of the heart of the blanket spreader. So we understand this woman, Jael, has a tender heart. Sisera had said to Jael, stand by the doorway of the tent. If any man comes by and asks, tell him I'm not here. Stand guard and lie for me if need be. Because Sisera knows it would take a man. It would take quite a man to bring him down. Sisera falls asleep. He's had his milk. He's covered up with his blanket. <laughs> Cue the lullaby. He's taking a nap. And J.L. goes on with his story. J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, went quietly to him when he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Scrawny little hillbilly lady, not even a part of Israel, picks up the mighty hammer. Thor turns out to be a girl, who knew? Picks up a tent peg and drives the nail into the evil general's temple, through his skull, into his brain, clear out the back of the skull, and all the way into the ground. She, and I mean this in the most literal sense, she nails him. <laughs> and this is in the Bible. And in case you're wondering how serious this injury might have been, the text tells us she drove the peg through the temple into the ground, and he died. No kidding. Maybe the three most unnecessary words in all of the Bible. And in case anybody missed this, in the next verse, Barak comes by the tent, and Jael invites him into her tent. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. And in case anybody wasn't paying attention to that, here's what we read in the next chapter, in the poetic summary that is called the Song of Deborah. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She sh this is in the Bible. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> Anybody unclear on what happened to Sisera here? 
He bought the farm, bit the big one, kicked the bucket, cashed in his chips. He's worm food. He's taking a dirt nap. He's pushing up daisies. Elvis has left the building, okay? What a shock to Cicero, because he knew only a man could take him down. I think the last thing to enter his mind, other than that tent peg, was the thought that he'd been defeated by a woman. And not just a woman. J.L. is called in the Bible the most blessed of women. And so you got to understand, the audience is thrilled. I mean, this is a dark story. This is a bloody story. The audience is cheering. Why? Because evil doesn't win. Because the injustice of the powerful does not have the last word. Because for all of the darkness and ambiguity, there is a moral arc to the universe. And if you want to know how vile Cicero's oppression was, we get a glimpse of it at the very end of chapter 5, Deborah's song, Deborah's song. It's a very artfully constructed piece. It's thought to be one of, if not the oldest passage in all of the Old Testament. And she imagines what happened back at Cicero's home when he doesn't come back. And she creates this little fictional moment where Sisera's mom, the general's mom, is waiting, looking out the window for her son to come back home, but he doesn't. And one of the servants says to her, oh, Sisera and the boys must be enjoying the plunder of winning the war as they always did. Are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a woman or two for each man? A woman or two. For each man. It's how Cicero rolls. See, the act of assaulting innocent women who are made in love by God has been a part of war, a frequent part of war from the beginning of time, and it goes on today in our world, in our enlightened world. Scholar Mark Thompson writes that sexual assault continues to be used as a strategic tool of war and genocide. Our world. 80% of all refugees and displaced persons of war are women. A woman or two for each man. See, these were real people that lived thousands ago. With real daughters and sisters and moms. And in the Hebrew, it's even more graphic. It would literally be translated a womb or two for each man. Just a body part. Womb or two for each man. That's what sin does. That's what evil does. That's what this man, Sisera, and his soldiers do. That's part of what God was saving his people from. That's why the people are cheering. Not this time, God says. Then the land had peace for 40 years. Now, this is just one story of many stories that would come to involve exile and suffering over which God would show Israel and humanity that our real battle is fought most often with prayer and suffering love, not tent pegs and hammers. But the darkness of this world and the battle goes on. And lest you think that the age of heroes has passed. A couple of weeks ago, I was with our team in Peru, and I talked to a woman who grew up as a compassion-sponsored child. 
and it changed her life. And when she grew up, she decided she was going to devote her life to working for women, advocating for women's rights in Jesus' name. Devoting herself to women who may be victims of physical violence or sexual assault. And she's just this little wisp of a thing. And I asked her, you ever face danger? You ever get scared? And she told me stories I couldn't believe. This is, I just talked to her a couple of weeks ago. She's telling me being in a real backcountry jungle in the Amazon, confronting violence against a particular woman in a quite remote region all by herself. And she's kidnapped by some men and placed against her will in a speeding motor vehicle to take her, she did not know where, to do God knows what. And she literally jumped out of that vehicle, literally ran for her life, flagged down the next passing vehicle, and trusted her life to a stranger, literally risking her life to help women in Jesus' name. And I think I got problems. I think I face hard stuff. The need for heroes has not passed. And can I say maybe God is calling you to be a Deborah? A Christian scholar named Elaine Storkey has written a book quite recently called Scars Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women. This is our world now today, not Deborah's. Acts of violence to women, age 15 to 44, produce more death, disability, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. From selective abortion to domestic abuse, to genital mutilation, to sexual assault. It is epidemic in our world and often deeply embedded in cultures. In 2017, allegations about the abuse of power by a man named Harvey Weinstein to intimidate and violate and silence young women began a movement whose resolution is not yet in sight. An actress named Alyssa Milano asked those who had experienced sexual assault to use the hashtag MeToo, and within minutes, social media was flooded with millions of stories, every one of them with a name and a face behind them, every one of them. And you'd think, you'd think the church would be the greatest champion for women, but often you'd be wrong. A study cited by Elaine Storkey found that 95% of Christian women who go to Christian churches say they have never heard a sermon declaring abuse is wrong. Sometimes the church has been worse than silent. Some of you may have seen recently a prominent church leader said that he believed that if a woman is being physically abused by her husband, that woman should remain in the home and submit to further violence. Are you kidding me? That is not biblical. It is not godly. It is not Christ-like. It is not God's will. It is not right. If you are in a marriage or a relationship and there is physical aggression and you are the victim of abuse, get out. Get safe. Talk to a campus pastor. We will help. It is not right. Violence against victims is evil and wrong. The abuse of power for sexual gratification is evil and wrong. It is against God's will. And the church ought to be the first and the loudest to say so. We live in a world 
of injustice and darkness and sin. And that's part of what the book of Judges paints in ways that make us very uncomfortable. And the writers of Scripture intend for that to be the case. And they all agree that in this world there is a great battle. And I wonder, what battle is God calling you to fight? It's probably not going to involve a hammer and a tent peg. Probably not. God was on a long journey to teach the human race about the real battle. And it took a long time and exile and suffering. And it reached its climax many centuries later with a man named Jesus, who, by the way, freely laid aside his superpowers. A big Roman soldier picked up a hammer and a nail and drove a nail through each one of those hands. There's that little image of hands again. Because the real battle was won by nail-scarred hands on a cross. Jesus won that battle not by inflicting violence and hate, not the way that we think our action movies are going to be won, but by bearing violence and love. Now that's a story. Now that's a story. And his father raised him on the third day. And now we're part of that battle, see? If you follow him, you're part of that battle. And it wages out there, but it wages in here. That battle between good and evil. Inside every one of us. Paul put it like this. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. And they are real. And they are iron chariots, and you cannot defeat them on your own, and neither can I. So, what battle is Jesus calling you to? Maybe your battle is against an addiction, and man, that's dark. I know there's darkness there. Maybe God is calling you to fight a battle against anxiety or depression. Some of the greatest heroes that I know and admire and love are fighting that battle, and nobody knows outside of God. Maybe you're fighting to save a marriage or, or to reconcile a relationship with your child. Maybe God is calling you to stand with the most vulnerable for people who are experiencing homelessness and so often in our culture just shame that goes with it or for suffering immigrants or for frightened children or for the unborn or for veterans in a hospital that everybody's forgotten. This is why next month in July, we're going to have a Serve Your City weekend where, you know, we all go to play our part for people who do not have the dignity of living space or little children that cannot read or people who face poverty or despair. And what you need to know when you are called to the battle is that you do not fight alone. Uh, there's a wonderful ending to this story. Chapter 5 is called the Song of Deborah. Uh, Judges 4 tells the story, and then Judges chapter 5 is called the Song of Deborah. It's a whole chapter. By the way, guess who wrote the Song of Deborah? Okay, not a trick question. Take a wild guess. Who do you think wrote the Song of Deborah? That would be Deborah. That's a woman. And it's the fifth chapter of Judges. In other words, it's a part of the Bible. In other words, a part of the Bible was written by a woman named Deborah. It's called the Song of Deborah. And you understand, song is a kind of a theological reflection. It's not like a tune for the radio. It's not like it goes, 
Da-da-da-da-da-da, oh, Sisera is dead. They nailed him in the head. It's not that kind of a song. Um, it's an expression of theological reflection to reveal the deep spiritual truth about what's been going on in the world. And this is what Deborah sang in the Song of Deborah. It was God who fought the battle. It was God who gave the victory. The mountains quaked, she says in there, before the God, the Lord of Israel. And then the final words of Deborah chapter 5 is, May all who love the Lord be like the sun when it rises in its strength. May all, not who sit in powerful offices with great titles, not may all who drive luxurious cars and live in giant homes. Not may all who command vast amounts of wealth. No, there's another kingdom. May all who love the Lord be like the sun when it rises in its strength. For God loves to use people that our world thinks are marginal and his strength is made perfect in weakness. There is a big God. There is a real big God, bigger than old General Sisera and bigger than his chariots of iron, bigger than your addiction, bigger than your failure, bigger than your disease, bigger than your problem, I promise you, bigger than oppression, bigger than injustice, bigger than evil. And he will give you courage if you ask, and he will give you wisdom if you ask, and he will give you love if you ask. There is a great battle. There is a great battle, and this is your day. And you do not fight alone. So show up. Be a hero. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, you know about the battle that everybody here is fighting. Big or small, public or private, uh, whether they're feeling like they're filled with resources or feeling alone and inadequate. Heavenly Father, for all of us who are followers of Jesus, we place our lives this moment in His hands. All of us know what it is to go up against iron chariots. We do not trust God in our own strength, our own power, our own courage, our own smarts. Just Him. Just our friend. Just those nail-scarred hands and that blood-stained cross and that empty tomb. Help us, God, fight the battle well. We pray in his name.